Hello and welcome to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast produced by Tell Me Studios for Aleph Insights. In this series of podcasts, we take a look at interesting topics and discuss what we think they tell us about analysis and decision making. I'm Fraser McGrew and I'm here with Chris Ragg, Peter Coghill and Nick Hare of Aleph Insights. And this week we're discussing fake whiskey. Tell us about fake whiskey. So I spotted a story on the BBC News um, about a, a, a Chinese writer visiting Switzerland, uh, Zhang Wei, um, and uh, he obviously is quite rich because he decided to buy himself a uh, five and a half thousand pound glass of whiskey. Um, this is this hotel, the uh, Wald Wald House Hotel. Um, is famous for whiskies and drinks, and they take it very seriously. Uh, and um, so he had his whiskey, enjoyed it, and shared it with the with the the restaurant owner. Um, and uh, but the the restaurant themselves, they they were suspicious of this whiskey because it obviously hadn't opened it before, um, and it had been in their collection for a while. Uh, it was it was reported it was it was supposed to be a Macallan 1878, which if you know anything about whiskey, which I don't, apparently is a extremely good extremely good vintage. Um, but they, so they 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 uh, took it upon themselves to take uh, to to give the whiskey to uh, some professional testers to see if it was what it was reported to be, uh, and apparently it's not. Apparently it's a it's a cheap knockoff. So they they. Um, pro- there's something about the provenance has broken down, and they they, they they thought they had something which they didn't, which got me thinking. How, you know, it's it's a it's a problem that's faced a lot, particularly in investigation and and uh, and judicial processes. How do you how, the, the the problem and the challenge of uh, guaranteeing the provenance of things? So evidence in the case of uh, in the case of police work, how do you guarantee that a physical piece of evidence hasn't been tampered with? And uh, you can. How do you keep track of it from crime scene to to courtroom? Um, how do you make sure that it's not been doctored anyway? And is that any harder? Which I think it is. Uh, in, in when you're dealing with things that are inherently ethereal, so information, and um, when you're when you're seizing people's computers because of suspected fraud or other nefarious activities, how do you how do you guarantee the provenance of the things that you're you're dealing with there? Okay, before handing it over on to others, though, did you come up with any initial uh, answers to your questions about provenance? Uh, well, uh, computers and things. So if, if, if you're being investigated, and there are a number of MPs being investigated for various reasons in Parliament again, um, they, they, they're, they're often particularly interested in transactional data. So who sent what messages to who and when they sent them and things like that. Because with that kind of information, you can build up an accurate picture of who was doing what when. And in what order those things occurred. Um, now, uh, you can set up computers to maintain a log. So, say, log in, it will log who logged in when. But then those logs could also be tampered with. So, you, you need another log to log when the logs have been changed. So, it, 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 it's incredibly difficult. So, the, the only way really to do it with the way computers are currently mostly configured is you just you have to seize it. You have to take it out, out, out of out of the hands of somebody who wants to uh, have any reason to change it uh, and impound it so that it uh, can it can't be accessed um which is difficult because you know there's plenty of times when 
you you might be the, the accusation might be fairly minor and you need that computer to continue doing your job so how do you how do you seize those logs and it becomes even more challenging when if the data that you're the data that's important to the investigation is distributed across lots of different servers in the cloud. How do you how do you seize those? How do you seize that data and take a take a snapshot of it so that it can't be tampered with? Yeah, I mean, I, I for me, um, I I think this issue of provenance is really is really interesting, and it's obviously very difficult to do. And I think the, the one of the key questions is not you know how do we do it, but when do we need to do it? So you know, in the case of the whiskey, for example, did it actually did it actually matter that it was it wasn't the vintage that uh, he said it was. If the if the chap had enjoyed it and and, and drunk it, uh, you know there there are all sorts of um, examples where actually for something like that that's for our pleasure, the um, the provenance doesn't matter. And in fact, um, being told the provenance is is some uh, uh, you know is something that it isn't actually enhances the the experience. So a taste. Um, the the sort of the the newly emerging field of um, neurogastronomy uh, is actually starting to to realise that um, taste is not something that's inherent in the food. It doesn't exist within the food. It's something that's created by our brain based on the sort of sensory input we get, but also the preloading we get in terms of being told about something. Well, so, I mean, come on. I mean, you're not going to convince me that marmite on toast is a glass of wine. I mean, that's not. He, no, but you can it's be obviously strongly influenced by the thing you're. Yes, by the visual picture. But there are examples, for example, uh, where where people have um, been given chocolate yogurt in the dark and told to taste test this new strawberry yogurt, and uh, you know a sizable proportion of the of the respondents have said, "Oh yes, I particularly like this." You know the really strong strawberry flavor of it or examples where experts have been you know wine experts have been given white wine that has been dyed to look red and simply not spotted that that fact you know uh, let let alone some of the more the more distinguished things so no on on if you've got visual reference you've got uh, smoke you know it's it's a whole sensory creation if you've got you've got all of that and you're being told something you probably you probably could in in some circumstances convince somebody that uh, you know, something that tastes strongly in one way actually tastes another way. Sure. If you... No, I'm, but I think I think the, we shouldn't. Just, I mean, the fact that we can show that our perception of taste is influenced. Uh, I mean, it's no different, really. You know, if you the perception of color, for example, you remember the dress from a couple of years ago? Was yeah, it blue or black, exactly. or was it? You know, and um, or beauty? What's yeah? Uh, well, but I mean, these are things that are a bit more objective. I mean, there are you know, you can use. Um, different kinds of uh shading for example to make two things that are exactly the same color look like completely different colors and um yeah there's a lot of the, it's it's influenced by context and all sorts of other things but it doesn't mean there's not fundamentally some underlying physical cause here um but the question is here is you know fine so that's the case uh it seems to me perfectly okay to want to pay lots of money for um to taste a whiskey that is historically significant it's like you know let, let, imagine drinking brandy that was owned by napoleon or something uh now that would be interesting i don't want to pay to believe that it was owned by napoleon i want to pay because it was actually owned by but napoleon and you... i will enjoy it more knowing it's owned by napoleon um than you know if i if i don't know that or but if, if but but that's fine so in the case of this this uh chinese uh writer at the point at which he was drinking it he knew that it was 
1878. Well, he didn't because it wasn't. He, he it believed, wasn't exactly. He believed it was. But that's that's my point. What's 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 the difference between the knowledge and and the belief in the in that context? What's the difference between knowledge and belief? I mean, well, for a start, knowledge has to be true. No, no, no right? not so. But in that in that context, <laughs> yeah. But so, in terms of in terms of his experience. Like his sensory experience might have been the same, but this is like saying, you know, it's it's sort of, um, you know, would we be happy to be plugged into a sort of matrix type thing and where we believe merely believed we were in the real world eating a steak, um, or do we assign some value to actually experiencing what we think we're experiencing? And I, and I think we do. I don't think we we don't just want the experiences of certain states of the world we want those states of the world to pertain and with you you might think that's stupid but the fact is it's true that people do have preferences about the way the real world actually is that aren't to do with preferences about what news they're receiving about the world right i mean obviously if if they're sensory if the the stimulation is absolutely equivalent then how would you know how would you know that no but that's a different question is how i'd know is what we're talking about it's it's different from saying well they're the same right thick believing wrongly that some that that a whiskey is 150 years old is is not the same as uh actually knowing it's 150 years old because it is now you might how you tell the difference is i think this question of how we establish provenance but they're not the same experience and and you know even though they might feel exactly the same they might be indistinguishable um it, there is obviously a difference. People have preferences for what for for it being true. I mean, that's, we, the yes. question of how they establish it's true is nobody wants thing. to be deceived, right? But in the event that we are deceived and we never find out about it, it's it's indistinguishable from from the other. Yeah, um, but I think the but coming coming back to sort of um, the the issue of uh, prov- provenance and when or why we we establish it there are there are obviously cases where it's it's more more important to establish provenance than than otherwise so for example with currencies you know uh, when we make a financial transaction we want to know that that financial transaction actually relates to some real money somewhere that's going to you know turn up in our account and that we're going to be able to use uh, uh, in the future but there are other areas where um, you know, if we're having a conversation with somebody online or something and uh, they're lying about their identity and they're actually a bot or, uh, you know, somebody, some Russian troll posing as somebody where it, it may be less important in a trivial uh, conversational context, but in a I'm going to now influence the outcome of this election context, it, it may be more important. So it's, you know, provenance is obviously difficult. And, you know, Peter talked about the difficulties of doing it in a, in a digital environment. Um, and because it's difficult, it probably makes sense to think about, uh, you know, when we definitely need to know the provenance of something and when we can let it slide a bit. Yeah, I think, that, you know, there's a basic kind of theory of provenance which doesn't really treat it as any different to any other kind of uh information problem what you're trying to do is find some signature some aspect or feature if you like of an object or a transaction or any other thing um that 
uh, is very is very improbable um, to have come from something else. Uh, you know, so it's, it's very unlikely to see that signature in in a non authentic article, uh, and highly likely to see it in an authentic article. That's essentially what you're trying to do. And um, usually, what you find in these sorts of cases is that it's quite easy to uh, rule stuff out. Generally, so actually, in the case of this whiskey, as far as I'm aware, even the label was wrong. The label wasn't. Uh, uh, the the actual label McCallum were using at the time, so that should have been very easy to rule out. But often, often it's it's quite hard. The, the, these things are quite hard to to sort of rule in to be absolutely certain about. You know, you and I don't know if you anyone here watches Fake or Fortune, but it's a very interesting program in which the BBC um, you know investigate whether or not a particular painting is genuinely by say Monet or someone. And of course, that has an enormous impact on its value. And and usually, you know, it's quite uh, it's a sort of they end up at this frustrating situation where well, nothing's been ruled out. So you know, you have the labels are right, the paint is right, the style is right, but there's just it's nothing actually saying that Monet painted this somewhere. You know, is is normally where you, they get into that sort of zone. And um, sorry, yes, Fraser. Well, I just wanted to bring it back round um, because we were talking. I know we we led in with the whiskey, and and actually that's a bit of an outlier because it should have been pretty easy and pretty swiftly uh, to to work out that it you know its provenance. But just going back to this digital question, um, you know, is there anything that's different now than might have been ten, twenty years ago in thinking about digital information? And um, I mean, what can we add to the discussion on that? And is 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 it more difficult or easier to prove provenance or to define to divine provenance now? So, my I, I think I think there is. I think Peter's Peter's right in the, in the sense, uh, you know, that it, if you think about what we're at, what information stored in electronic form looks like, um, it's very mutable. You know, it's if it, it essentially switches, tiny switches being one way or the other. And you can just come in, switch them into a different configuration. And there is almost nothing to tell you that they used to be uh, in a different configuration. So at a fundamental level, you can't do that with a book. You know, you can't you can't take a, a new piece of paper and do things to it, uh, you, you know, easily that will make it look like an old piece of paper. Just it's not you know, that's just it's physically very, very challenging. Physical objects are very hard to change on a fundamental level, whereas information as stored in electronic form is easy to change. So what do we do about that? Peter, what do we do about that? Uh, well, uh, it gives us a chance to talk about blockchain again, because uh, the blockchain provide, presents us with a, with possibilities that we haven't had hitherto. Um, a distributed ledger that records all uh, any transactions um, could 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 be an could be an answer to this. So um, because you haven't you're not relying on a central authority, which if vulnerable could mean the the doctoring of of, of records of logs, because everyone potentially has a copy of uh, all the transactions, then um, it's much harder to change. In in a, in a sort of analog to the difficult the difficulty of changing a physical object. Yeah, I think this the the what it's essentially doing is it's like it's sending out you're 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 churning out a lot more information every time and throwing it throwing it around the place every time you you want to record a transaction. Um, and in a sense, you've got a lot more bits of thing to hunt down. You've got a lot more things to hunt down and change if you wanted to, you know, somehow defraud the world through a blockchain. It's certainly not 
totally impossible to imagine some software that could do that um that could you know uh subvert a blockchain it's just very very hard uh it just makes it harder because there's more of it you know and i think that's the, it's the equivalent to there's no reason a centralized authority couldn't do it but it's the equivalent of taking lots of copies and sending them to people you know it, it means that it's just there's a lot more work you've got to do to to try and uh commit fraud um i'm not sure if we're getting close to any kind of resolution on this but um we, we are close to needing to finish. Um, Chris, anything to weigh in with at this stage? Well, I think, um, you know, at the, at the heart of something like blockchain, yes, it's about uh, electronic, um, you know, records and uh, the use of a distributed ledger. Um, but, but it's kind of at its heart is still, um, you know, the, the verification of trust uh, in something by a distributed network of of people i mean people are attached to those those computers but it but it's it's kind of the same as having a mass a mass witnessing of of something you know that it's much more difficult you know you might go and change one person's mind but you can't change you know millions of people's minds that that they didn't witness something um so i i think you know what's it's kind of taking an extension of that um of the mass witnessing of something and and putting it in a um uh, in a, a kind of digital format, so I think it's it's a it's a technology that works with with people and, and people's ownership of information. So I think that's why it's um, you know potentially going to be more more trustworthy than other uh, other technologies. Yeah, and it, well, it relies on a mass of people who have copies of all of these transactions who have are indifferent to specific <coughs> transactions, but are interested in the security of all of the transactions collectively. So they, they, they so they will take steps to make sure that their system can't be doctored because they have a general interest because the the integrity of the whole blockchain is important. But they are indifferent about specific uh, transactions represented there. Yeah, I mean, yeah, so I mean, this which touched on the the reason why we care about provenance in some cases, and it's almost always the, the we need to have a provenance technology when there is an incentive to uh, to fake provenance in some way. Um, you know, whereas things like, um, you know, you look at something like trying to uh, authenticate some, um, you know, whether or not some uh, some some um, artifacts are Roman or not, uh, is something no no one probably really has that big an incentive to um, to try and fake, right? So generally, there's there's we don't ha- we don't have to develop a technology. Um, which is hard, which is unbreakable, because people generally don't have an incentive to fake those kinds of things. But obviously, things like art or whiskey, where having a good provenance it makes something hugely more valuable, then there is a there's a competitive element to it, which means we we that's where we need to focus um, our our kind of yeah, or just buy off the shelf whiskey, which will probably be just as good. Yeah, I think in most uh, cases. But if you're interested in investing in whiskey, then then that's not. not right, investing not is a different matter. As far um, as I'm aware, the advice is don't. Yeah. If you're trying to get a, a return on it. Okay. Uh, we need to finish there. Chris, do you want to come in with something? Uh, yeah, no, I was, ju- I was just going to sort of um, conclude from my perspective with the the quote from um, Theodore Rousseau, the the uh, famous art historian and, and forgery connoisseur. Okay, excellent. Um, who uh, who said. That, you know, we only find out about the bad forgeries. Uh, the good ones are still hanging on the walls, which uh, I think is um, worth us bearing in mind from a from a humility um, very apt. angle. Very apt. Very apt. Nice note to finish on. 
Okay, well, thank you, as always, for listening to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast. I'm Fraser McGrew. We've been here with Chris Ragg, Peter Coghill, and Nick Hare of Aleph Insights. Thank you, and until next time, goodbye.